Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Welcome, everyone. This is Carlos from Seedcamp. Today, we have an amazing topic, amazing guest, and a fellow colleague joining as part of this interview as well. If you hear any background noise, it's partially because we have a lot of guests in at Seedcamp today, and there's a lot of rain coming on the on the side of the of the building. So apologies for that. Either way, let me introduce our guest. His name is Dimitri Kaval. He's the CEO of Blockwise, and we'll be talking about things like ICOs, blockchain, Bitcoin, and everything in the middle. I know that's a hot topic at the moment. Um, really excited to to have you here, Dimitri. I also want to include uh, Kieran. Satoshi Schmidt. I love this guy. He's been working with us for a while. He's been deep, deep, deep into uh, blockchain these past few months and uncovered a lot of really interesting facts. And he's going to be leading up a portion of the interview today, talking about ICOs and tokens and all the all the fervor that's going on in that space at the moment. So first of all, thanks guys for joining us. Great to be here, Carlos. Thanks. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Thank you. So, Dimitri, let's start off with the basics. You studied applied mathematics in Russia in one of the top universities there. Um, and when you graduated, you went on to do something which is perhaps like the foundation of where you are today. Walk us through what, what that was. Uh, my first job was actual development of the custom applications on top of Oracle database. Uh, so we've done a few projects with uh, telecom providers and banks. And since that, uh, I worked all my life in IT and information security and uh, related stuff. Worked for Cisco for, for a few years. Uh, and then I founded the company uh, in Russia, which was back 2003, uh, which does the value-added distribution of uh, uh, different uh, high-tech brands uh, in the field of information security, networking, data centers. So we've actually introduced uh, to the market the vendors like Juniper Networks, NetApp, Palo Alto Networks, and uh, some, some more. Uh, so that's about the background. Uh, back in 2014, I started to um, to research on uh, cryptocurrencies and uh, uh, blockchain uh, stuff. Uh, so when uh, back in 2015, I've exited the operational role at uh, uh, the distribution company. So I've started uh, Blockwise. Uh, Blockwise is um, uh, so the idea of Blockwise was the consultancy. Uh, around blockchain technology. So what we do is uh, we help the customers to understand technology and to implement, uh, to build some systems uh, for for them on top of blockchain. Excellent. Well, that's a great summary of what you guys are doing today. If we take two steps back during that era when you started your company in 2003 and then you kind of exited out of it about two years ago, walk us through some of the key things that you learned from that experience and I guess one of them could be around how to manage a technical team of that caliber you know clearly you're very smart and you hire very smart people to help with you know the the the, the process of adding just adding value to anybody looking to engage with infosec products but what was that like in terms of hiring smart people retaining smart people motivating smart people and what what could you share with founders about that experience yeah that that's the most uh, uh, difficult part of of uh, running a company like this 
Uh, yeah, so I personally think that you have to create the atmosphere in, in the team, uh, which will be comfortable for uh, for smart people. And that's basically it. It's easy to tell, but but not easy to do. You just have to uh, to think of it and try to do this. Mm. But if you walk us through maybe how you set up the organization and the culture to do that so that other founders could learn from that. So I'll give you an example. It's not unusual to have a person who's really good technically to sometimes come with some personality uh, baggage, right? Um, I remember being at a company back in the days when I was working in the tech space. There's this one guy in particular who was really gifted. He, he was doing a hardware implementation design. He just rubbed everyone the wrong way, but I knew that the company couldn't get rid of him because he was such a key uh, player in the organization. And you as a founder, you know, well, you probably dealt with people like that. What's the what's the thing that you used or the, what's what's the way that you set up the company to avoid, you know, um, turf wars or to avoid prima donnas or to avoid that kind of structure that can be destructive in a, an organization full of super, super intelligent people with individual interests, you know, public profiles in some cases and uh, open source contributions, which can make them in some ways have an ego. You have always think about the backup. So that's, that's the key thing. So you have to think what happens if, uh, if some, someone leaves. So what, how this will affect your, uh, your operations. And, uh, so this is a balance. So sometimes, uh, you can't just straight away to put another person backing up the, uh, the first one, but you have to think and plan this in advance. So that's basically it. All right. Well, if you go back to, to Blockwise and, and what you're doing today, so walk us through really what the genesis of, of the idea was, kind of how it dawned on you that this was like the thing that you wanted to do and, and the, maybe some early customer points and, and, and walk us through like what a typical customer today would go through in engaging with Blockwise. Uh, so the typical engagement is uh, a customer wants to interest in uh, implementing blockchain. Uh, so we, they, they normally have some business case for, uh, potential business case for this implementation. So the first thing we do is we do the evaluation of, of this business case. So we can produce like short, uh, few pages, uh, paper. Uh, this we do for free, uh, whether, whether this is a good case or not for, for implementation. And then, uh, if, if everything's fine and the case is good, then we can start to build the, uh, POC. Uh, and then if POC is successful, we can start to do some piloting and implementation. So that's basically the roadmap, uh, of, uh, of, of any, any project. But if we, if we take that project timeline and we apply it to your typical customer. So first of all, what is your typical customer? Who, who is the type of person that engages with you? Uh, so it's, it's, it's can be, it can be startup. Uh, it can be like larger, uh, financial institution or insurance company, uh, and are these companies that that find you that you actively target? Yeah. So we yeah we we are looking for them. Yeah. Yeah. And then are these companies that you had relationships with from your previous startup or? No, it's totally new because uh, yeah we started in this market. Right. Uh, it's new for us. So. So it was more. I, I think it sounds to me like it was more around the interest that you had in the technology, and then you knew that you were going to have to go for a new customer base. Yeah. But. Okay, so the new, as you're going through this analysis, I mean, to some extent, this could be a huge waste of time for Blockwise, you know, thinking through every one of these cases. What, what kind of criteria do you have internally for, is, is it intellectual curiosity of engaging with a specific customer? Or is it, you know, do you have like a, a, a sort of a very quick test of 
is are these companies and what are their needs and can we add help? How do, yeah. how do you go through that? Yeah, both. So actually, it's a curiosity for sure. And uh, yeah, it can be, you can pretty easy understand whether this is a good case for, for this technology or not. And uh, also, you can reuse uh, the, the findings uh, you've done before. So that's basically how, how it works. Can you, can you walk us through a, a, uh, one customer? I mean, it, one that isn't confidential, but just walk us through kind of like what their needs were why they came to you, what you did, and how it got rolled out? Okay, so let's say uh, it's a startup insurance company, uh, broker, basically. Uh, they do the parametric uh, insurance, yeah. uh, which means that uh, they collect the data uh, from uh, the connected sensors. And uh, so the data uh, triggered triggers the um, either payout or claim claim processing um, and stuff like that. So you, uh, the the data is checked against uh, several sources, and uh, so it's all implemented in smart contracts. So the uh, uh, typical use case is uh, uh, for for blockchain is when the system is distributed. Uh, that's the first essential uh, requirement because if you don't need the distributed system then it's better to use traditional database or traditional uh, technology. And the second thing is that when there has to be some multi-party uh, ecosystem. So when several parties are involved in the process, like in this case it can be broker, the underwriter, the reinsurer, the customer. And uh, it's even better or uh, necessary if, if they have intrinsic conf conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the blockchain uh, will bring the most value mm -hmm. uh, into the implementation. So basically, that's it. Mm -hmm. So the distributive nature and uh, let's say interest conflict or lack of trust in mm -hmm. the ecosystem. Okay. And so you built this out for them. What, what, what exactly do you mean by you built this out for them? And what did it look like as an implemented uh, it's it's a pilot project so far, so it's just the IT infrastructure for claims processing. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to use any any third party products, which are extremely expensive in the insurance market. Mm -hmm. uh, so they can uh, just uh, process the claims faster and uh, cheaper. So that's basically the value they've got. And and do you help with distributing this afterwards? After after that's been completed, do you help with the process of getting this? across all the different parties that need to be involved? Or? Certainly, yes. Okay, and, and is that a challenging part of the process? Or? Yeah, yeah, so the integration with the biggest systems is the most challenging because, uh, yeah, so you have to, to gain access to uh, to agree with, with the uh, party uh, of gaining the access to their systems, and that's the most, most difficult part, organizationally. Okay, so if I had to come up with the three laws, Dimitri's three laws of of working with a company that thinks that they might want to use blockchain technologies. It has to be a company that, or a, a particular service that would benefit from a distributed ledger where all the parties have potentially conflict of interest, multiple parties with conflict of interest, and where there's the viability for the integration with their individual systems. Yeah. Would you say that that's yeah. accurate? Yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So moving from that to the debate that I think some people have been having online, about the division between uh, Bitcoin and, and currencies as a sort of replacement for the financial infrastructure of the world from what you're doing, which is kind of building value in verticals using blockchain and digital ledger technologies. Where do you think the world is going to end up in five years from now? Where, like where in that spectrum, 
do you think that five years from now we'll be sitting and looking at like this whole digital currency thing and kind of seeing it as a as a a, a sort of a a subset and a slave to blockchain digital ledger companies that are using it for vertical applications, or do you see the other way around? Uh, so I think the both parts of, of this equation uh, will grow and uh, will have some place in uh, in the future world. So if you're talking about vertical applications, uh, so it's basically the replacement of uh, of some legacy IT uh, infrastructure. So it's it's traditional corporate uh, IT uh, system. Uh, it's just based upon new ideas and new technology. So there are a lot of players in this area. So this is the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance, um, uh, Hyperledger for sure, uh, which are targeted on particular vertical uh, implementations of blockchain. Uh, so it's it's kind of uh, uh, Linux, which has replaced some some of the legacy operating systems. So in the same way, uh, the blockchain technology uh, will replace some of the IT uh, applications based on databases or, or other technologies. So that's uh, uh, about the corporate world. In terms of the cryptocurrencies, that's a totally different situation. Uh, it's uh, so I, I believe that Bitcoin and uh, and probably some some other cryptocurrencies will have uh, their place in the financial world as a payment system. Uh, for sure, and uh, probably as a store of value as well. So this is a kind of a separate uh, ecosystem which grows and uh, develops uh, with time. So the adoption is growing. Uh, so the investments is going up uh, to the infrastructure projects like mining equipment, uh, exchanges, uh, companies like Coinbase and uh, other uh, stuff. So the um, amount of money uh, being invested in, in the cryptocurrency is growing as well. So this will have some place. I don't believe that like five, 10 years time from now, uh, everything will be uh, like every payment will be done through cryptocurrency. I don't think so because of the obvious technical limitations we have now, but uh, it'll have some place. Well, on, on that point of technical limitations that we have right now, maybe you can comment on the, the recent Bitcoin fork. Uh, yeah, so this actually showed uh, how important is the governance over over uh, such system like Bitcoin? So basically, um, uh, the whole problem was because of the disagreement between the uh, uh, different parties, which are the core developers and the miners. And uh, uh, also, it turned out that the mining is concentrated in uh, quite a few uh, hands, actually. And uh, so that was the the, the reason behind uh, behind all these discussions and and what what happened. Um, having said that, I think it's not a big problem for uh, for uh, the for Bitcoin uh, as as long as they came to an agreement. And uh, so SegWit uh, technology is, is brilliant, so it's very good. And uh, uh, so, so, so basically, we see kind of agreement between all the parties in Bitcoin, and that's why uh, uh, the, the price is growing actually. So the price is growing, and this uh, supports uh, what I said. And so, in terms of Bitcoin Cash, uh, yeah, it's just an alternative cryptocurrency. Uh, will it survive? I don't know. So it's it's good so far. Not not too bad so far, but uh, still the main Bitcoin uh, will remain number one. So when you say the main Bitcoin will remain the number one, what are the attributes of a digital currency five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, that will define it as being the number one? You know, we, we think about um, traditional currencies as being the number one when there's an element of 
trust associated with it in terms of whether the government that backs it is uh, financially capable of defending it or whether there's some sort of asset uh, um, tracking to it, although that's kind of been deprecated. Um, what is it that defines the trustworthiness of a, a digital currency? What will define the future success of a digital currency? And do you see that being a function of technical merit or do you see that as a function of adoption rate? Or do you see that as a function of some other thing that keeps it stable? Adoption rate. Uh, it's mostly a function of adoption rate. Uh, so how many people or businesses use it? So that will define uh, the whole uh, whole thing. All right. So the, if, if I, if I get, let you off the hook with the answer of adoption rate, there's got to be a level to that question that goes below just that answer. What, dif- what will drive the faster adoption rate? So, for example, with Bitcoin, I could argue that it just cannot transact fast enough to then merit a high adoption rate. Even though it's got a high awareness rate, you would argue that Ethereum is probably a little faster than that. But if we fast forward across all the diff- different digital currencies that you're familiar with, what, what are the ones that you think are rising stars? Okay. So in terms of Bitcoin, uh, so it has the uh, the brand recognition for certain, and it has like the advantage of being the first. Uh, so the technical problems in, uh, with the production capacity, if they solve it uh, efficiently, uh, then this will uh, certainly come to um, uh, certainly grow the adoption. Uh, on the other hand, the user experience is uh, is not yet there because it's it's quite difficult. For the regular person to mm. to get the Bitcoin wallet and to understand mm. all these addresses and stuff, so basically two areas of improvement in terms of the technology, so the transaction throughput and the user experience. So if uh, Bitcoin manages to uh, to win this race, then then this will be uh, still number one. Uh, but Bitcoin has advantage because of the brand recognition. In terms of the other uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, Ethereum is totally different. Because it's not actually the cryptocurrency, so it's uh, it's a to- intrinsic token of the application platform. So if you like, uh, Ethereum is the kind of uh, AWS in distributed applications. So everyone who wants to build and test the distributed application uh, uses Ethereum, and uh, the demand for Ether tokens actually driven by by those people. So it's different. So you mm. buy Ethers and uh, you pay for, for the network mm-hmm. uh, just to test your applications or to run your applications. Uh, that's why Ethereum is a slightly different uh, story. Mm. As for other cryptocurrencies, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe Litecoin is, is good. Uh, mm. But it's still, so the, the market capitalization of Litecoin is uh, like 10 times orders of magnitude less than mm. uh, Bitcoin. But on the other hand, um, I don't think um, uh, there was any technical problems with Litecoin mm. or transaction capacity problem. So it's good. Okay, well, on that theme, we're talking about tokens and applications, maybe you can walk us through this current wave of ICOs and tokens that has been sort of taking everyone by storm. You know, uh, I know Karen is going to later share some stats with us, but it seems that more money has been raised on ICOs recently than venture funding as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe you can help start by educating our audience on what is an ICO, what is a token, and, and then maybe I'll hand it off to you, Karen. Okay. So uh, imagine you have a kind of uh, business idea and you want to, uh, to start the business uh, of providing some goods or services. Uh, so what you can do is you can tokenize 
so so called tokenize the um, offer of your uh, of your business and then you can basically sell these tokens effectively meaning that you are getting the down payment for future goods services so it's more or less same as uh, yeah yeah it's a traditional crowdfunding model mm-hmm. uh, but the difference is is the underlying technology so you issue the token and uh, it's blockchain based so it's transparent so everyone can uh, can audit and check uh, where these tokens go and how you uh, manage uh, everything so that that's the difference uh, so you issue the token and you do the sale so basically you sell it as a, as a regular uh, uh, crowdfunding campaign uh, with the difference that you get cryptocurrency instead of the traditional currency Mm-hmm. Uh, for your tokens. So normally you get either Ethers or Bitcoins or, or other cryptocurrencies, but mostly Ether and Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you, after, after the sale is over, you actually get Bitcoins or Ethers, which you can sell and uh, pay your development or uh, marketing or whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So that's basically how it works. Uh, why is it growing so fast? And uh, uh, I probably not agree that it's larger than the venture capital, but it's yeah, it's the same order of magnitude as the uh, venture capital market. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, is because of growth of uh, of the Bitcoin price. Basically, that's that's the reason. Uh, so the market capitalization of Bitcoin is about fifty billion at the moment, and another twenty five billion is the market capitalization of Ethereum. So it's 75 billion potential market. So the people who hold the uh, these, these cryptocurrencies uh, are either developers or traders, uh, early adopters of the cryptocurrencies. They, by, uh, by DNA, have uh, higher risk thresholds. And that's why they are ready to invest uh, this money, which they've got actually from out of thin air because of the growth of the price. They are ready to invest into the uh, like risky projects like startups. So that's why uh, this mm. this is such a big market. Mm. So if if Bitcoin price uh, dips down, then this market will shrink suddenly. If it goes up, then it will grow. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it's still the uh, crowdfunding. So there's no no much difference. Mm. Uh, the only difference is technology. Mm. If I can add one more question to that, what point does it start? having to require some level of governance the same way that shares in the company require governance because it could very easily devolve into early people being able to buy and sell things in a company that has effectively no no um, source of revenue and therefore you're trading an inflated value of a token versus the real value of the asset. Uh, to what extent crowdfunding is governed? So basically, in crowdfunding, in traditional crowdfunding, what is governed? Because if, if you get shares as part of a you know a Crowdcube or a Cedars, you you you're you're limited by the same governance. That yeah, if you get shares, also. yes. Yeah. Uh, if if it's shares or or, or debt, yeah, uh, yes, then yes. But if it's just uh, a good, yeah, then you can trade that good. Yeah. So basically, it's the same. Uh, it's it's exactly the same. So you can you have to uh, uh, to do some checks on the team, and on, uh, so you have to carefully uh, read the white paper, mm-hmm. and uh, that's basically it. so the ways of, of of due diligence uh, of these startups are more or less traditional. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, yeah, Dimitri, it'd be good to kind of dig in a little more into your view on the ICO market and the, both in terms of the you know the amount of capital that's being raised by some of the companies and, and the quality of the projects that are emerging. Um, just on the VC versus kind of uh, cryptocurrency quantums, I mean, 
the latest stats, I think we've seen that kind of like over 1.2 billion have been poured into ICOs um, in 2017 alone, which kind of far exceeds the uh, the quantums in startups uh, related to blockchain. Um, but we've seen, you know, like raises like Tezos, which is around 230 million or so. Um, I mean, what's your kind of view on the quality of the projects that are emerging, um, whether we're kind of in a bubble at the moment, um, whether the amounts being raised are, are, are dangerous for the entrepreneurs involved? Um, yeah, <laughs> so, so there are good questions. So I'm a little bit skeptical on this big uh, project. Uh, I, I can't tell that uh, it's all like, uh, so I don't believe uh, that it will happen. So I think it is, the, the projects are quite strong, the white papers are good, and mm-hmm. uh, so it is possible to uh, to build something yeah. uh, around these ideas um, and technologies. Uh, so uh, yes, the amounts are kind of dangerous because because it's too like too big, uh, and basically you can build the the good piece of software for a few million maybe, and what will you do with the with the other hundred million, right? So that's that's a big question. On the other hand, so if it's properly managed, uh, uh, then it can become very 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 interesting uh, businesses. Mm-hmm. Because they can basically they can acquire some some existing companies, they can uh, expand to to any markets. So it's very interesting to see what what how they will spend this money. Yeah. And uh, I think it's it it will we, we will see the uh, the results maybe in a year or two from now because it's too early to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, same as with uh, with the early stage investments actually. So we you you will only see the uh, the um, uh, progress in in some time. So uh, I think uh, the whole story will kind of repeat the crowdfunding uh, story. So we will only see the uh, uh, the progress in a year or two from now. And uh, depending on this, uh, it will be like corrected uh, towards lowering the risk threshold on investors or uh, if there will be like huge successes with uh, some of the uh, companies made ICOs, then probably it will reshape the whole market. Mm-hmm. I know we talked a little bit about this before the interview, but you can maybe address some of the evolution you think we might see in the way that these token sales are conducted. I mean, at the moment, we're just seeing the reason that some of these companies are raising such huge um, amounts of money is because it's just a single round raise and they have to kind of prepare themselves for the coming years. It's unlike a startup where they can go on and raise, you know, different amounts of cash in, in different years. Um, do you think we're going to kind of see an evolution in, in the amount, in the stages at which um, protocols kind of get money, whether we might see more staggered um, yes, models? Yes, certainly. Yeah, the beauty of the technology is it allows to, to, to do any granularity or any um, type of, of race. So you can basically do initial coin offering and then you can do secondary coin offering. Nothing prevents you from doing so. Uh, so it only So the only thing is that you have to, uh, to prove to your potential investors that the tokens will, will go up in price. So that's the, uh, the only uh, thing. So if you are able to do so, then uh, uh, and if, if you do like initial and secondary and whatever, then you, you have to, to do the same uh, during some period of time. So if you do just, just, just ICO, you have to just prove it on, in, in the very beginning uh, once. Yeah. Then if you do like um, uh, several stages, then you have to prove it all the time during all, all these uh, stages. So that's, that's the difference. Uh, but the thing is that uh, after normally after the ICO, the tokens go to the exchange. So everyone can trade uh, these tokens. And basically the price of these tokens uh, depends on, uh, on the news coming from the company. 
So if the company uh, uh, delivers the, the product, opens the um, presence uh, overseas or in different markets, uh, does some marketing activities, then the price normally uh, go, goes up. Uh, so therefore, it's, it's very... Uh, um, I mean, it resembles yeah. the traditional equity market. Yeah. yeah. Um, to kind of like take it back a little bit, I know that you made a couple of angel investments in the space and you're, you're involved in some, some crypto projects and, and you kind of consult entrepreneurs, um, roadmaps for blockchain. Um, maybe you can just kind of speak to which kind of applications and companies the ICO model of financing the company kind of suits best. Um, which kind of applications do you think, um, you know, the model where token ownership um, in the entity um, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly the best um, candidates for ICO is when the token uh, you issue uh, has, has some intrinsic value. So it, ideally it has to be the blockchain based uh, system because otherwise uh, if you just do the uh, like um, so otherwise there is no difference uh, with, with the crowdfunding mm-hmm. with the regular or regular Kickstarter. Uh, so the the difficulty of ICO is that you have to to prove, as I said before, to prove to to your investors uh, that the token will, will will grow in price. So if you are able to do so, so basically this has to be the uh, intrinsic token to your future uh, system, and uh, it has to have value. Perhaps you could kind of. Um Speak to some of the experiences you've had at Sweatcoin and, and Chainstarter, and kind of some of the projects you think. Yeah, so yeah, I'm involved in, in a few uh, startups so far. So one of them is Sweatcoin, uh, which is the um, uh, cryptocurrency backed by physical movement. So basically, this cryptocurrency is uh, issued when uh, people walk. Uh, so you you walk some steps. The steps are verified, so you can't game the uh, like sh- by shaking the phone and stuff like that. Then uh, against the steps, uh, you get the coins, and the coins can be spent in uh, in-app uh, store for different goods and services. Uh, so this is a good uh, candidate for for the ICO uh, because uh, uh, so there is an intrinsic economy in the system. Uh, so there is a value because uh, so Sweatcoin has about 800,000 users so far. So uh, the number of users is growing and uh, uh, the, uh, the value of Sweatcoin is backed up by the uh, vendors selling, selling their goods for, for Sweatcoins. So basically, uh, if uh, the, the amount of sales grows, then the value of the token grows as well. Uh, so that's why it's a good example uh, of, uh, uh, of of the ICO company. And uh, uh, so Sweatcoin will do the kind of uh, foundation uh, for to make the ICO. So this foundation has its uh, uh, vision and aim of promotion of the like active lifestyle and uh, uh, yeah, so stuff like that. Yeah, what's, what's interesting to me is, you know, our insurance company here at Camp, you know, Vitality has a similar thing in effect they're not going through it through blockchain and ICOs. They're just, they have their in, internal own currency of movement equals benefits, which can go cash in as a coffee or something else. Mm-hmm. And then you have other sort of equivalent currencies like um, Avios, you know, for membership mm-hmm. rewards. Mm-hmm. And, and you also have like Xbox points, you know, again, within the ecosystem of Xbox. What, where do you see these different kinds of equivalent value holders merging in the next years 
Do you see, for example, the Avioses of the world, the Xbox, digital currencies of the world, instead of having to develop their own infrastructure to, to offer these kinds of things or vitality to offer these things, that they're going to just, hey, you know what? Let's just use Sweatcoin. And then everyone migrates away from closed-ended digital currencies attributable to the Xbox ecosystem mm-hmm. and move on to some centrally or decentralized? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So I think that uh, insurance companies certainly can use uh, Sweatcoins as well as uh, any other like, company which uh, wants to motivate their employees, for instance, uh, to be fit or, or something like that. In terms of Avios and other uh, loyalty programs, I don't think they will move to centralized uh, uh, type of currency because uh, the loyalty program uh, by, by its like essence, uh, is uh, to 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 maintain to support the loyalty of their own customers. So if they let's say uh, say okay, we now accept the uh, loyalty points from from different airline. So all of a sudden uh, you are supporting your competitor. Well, there's an exchange rate, right? Yeah. I mean, Amex has this. There's a Amex generates the, yes yeah. mines the points, if you will. Yeah. And then you then spend it across multiple different. Um, competing airlines so it's got some resemblance there yeah I mean it's interesting you bring up the, the loyalty points thing before um, I know we've had the conversation before and you see a lot of companies who are going down the ICO route kind of portraying tokens as loyalty points so you see this with you know some of the crypto hedge funds which might be issuing tokens they're kind of articulating the token in a way that it sounds like it's a loyalty point to kind of get away from some of the regulatory constraints that might be there I get, it'd be good to kind of get your views on the regulatory landscape I mean we, we're speaking a couple of weeks after the SEC has just had this ruling that you know the DAO tokens are are to be qualified securities and, and you know how, how the regulatory landscape might affect ICOs in the future yeah exactly that's a very good question and uh, yeah so the uh, ICO will be regulated eventually and uh, it is actually regulated uh, now if uh, if the company tries to to uh, bind the tokens with something uh, which is essentially a financial instrument so, uh, so if you bind uh, anything like uh, the equity or the debt or uh, some other uh, liabilities to the tokens, uh, then uh, then it's regulated. So that's why uh, companies want to uh, to to say to tell that it is just the uh, loyalty points or intrinsic currency of the system. Uh, so you can't do the ICO uh, with uh, equity uh, backup. It'd be good also to get your views on how ordinary people can kind of do their own due diligence on some of these projects. So it's different to say, again, venture-backed startups where the VC might be able to, you know, phone up some of their portfolio founders and get uh, a CTO's view on a company that's being assessed. Um, The difference is with with ICOs, obviously, it's open to everyone. Um, How do you think that an ordinary person, when assessing whether they should put their money into an ICO or a coin, should should assess that? So so there there are a few uh, things uh, which can be uh, assessed. So uh, when ICO starts, so you can normally, if if this is good ICO, so this has to be good white paper. Uh, Like, so you have to believe the idea and uh, it has to be kind of... uh, uh, like technology uh, 
uh, describes what kind of technology will be used. And uh, so it has to be like well-rounded, uh, good white paper. So that's the first criteria. Second criteria is normally uh, with good, good companies, they do like Q&A sessions with founders. Uh, same as with Crowdcube or whatever. So normally you are able to ask the questions to the founders. So if you're not able to ask the questions, that, then, then that can, can be the red flag. And uh, another thing is the transparency of the ICO. Uh, so we actually uh, at BlockWest, we start a new project, which is called Chain Starter, uh, which will be the platform for um, uh, entrepreneurs to, uh, to support them in ICO process, basically the ICO platform. And uh, uh, so we pay uh, attention to, uh, to the transparency of the process. So if uh, if it's said that the company gets a certain amount of tokens already in the uh, so it has to be so you you have to be able to double check this with uh, either analyzing the smart contracts or whatever data or or the blockchain data and the good thing is the blockchain uh, gives the perfect opportunity to do this so if uh, if the company hides this somehow so you can't double check uh how many tokens how many cryptocurrency has been collected and uh what what are the addresses how it's uh, uh what is the uh, the code of the smart contract behind the ico then it's red flag again uh then uh, certainly the background of the team uh, as as usual so the the track records uh, like linkedin profiles uh, or or other uh, profiles yeah basically that's it Speaking to your experiences at Chain Starter again, we're seeing more and more companies um, you know, look at the ICO as a financing mechanism that they might prefer to VC because the levels of money that they can raise is a lot more, so maybe a lot quicker. Um, perhaps you can kind of speak about how you think that um, ICOs and, and tokens are going to disrupt venture capital. And, and yeah, we will see this in some in some time from now. So in year or two. So we will see what's going on with the companies raised money through ICOs. Uh, we will see on the price of the tokens on the exchanges. And uh, so this will uh, affect uh, the, the market size and uh, the development of, of the whole ICO market. Uh, but I think it will be uh, the same route as, uh, as uh, crowdfunding, because essentially it is a crowdfunding. Um, well, I mean, I think we've covered quite a bit of, 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 of different themes. I think one of the things that I'm curious to hear is what are you most excited about in this space? I mean, I know that the success of Blockwise is, is top of the list, but what other things are you excited that you're seeing now blossom and applications that you're like, wow, I had really would have never imagined this, even though you're quite familiar with the tech underlying technology, it's mm-hmm. use you would have never imagined. Yeah, actually, uh, the technology is, is, is very exciting. Because uh, uh, if you think about uh, about the distributed databases like five years ago or ten years ago, that's totally uh, impossible. That was totally impossible. So to build a distributed database, you have to to buy very expensive equipment, the clusters and the licenses and stuff. And now basically uh, you can you can do the distributed database, essentially distributed application. Uh, you can just build it immediately. With, with Ethereum or, or the platforms like Ethereum. So that, that's actually big shift in, in information technology. Because, uh, smart contracts and Ethereum and the, and the same platforms like Hyperledger, uh, it's essentially the virtualization platform. Uh, so you can put your application, uh, into this platform 
deployed and it all of a sudden becomes immediately becomes uh, totally reliable distributed and uh, unkillable uh, so that that's a big difference in IT but it will take some time to understand for the corporate customers uh, but eventually it will have very very big place in their IT systems in in a few years mm. okay you look into the future you you presumably you watch science fiction films <laughs> Um, what what element of science fiction do you think will become science fact in 10 years, powered by blockchain? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, blockchain can complement um, uh, all these AI uh, technologies or, or self, self-driving cars and stuff like that. So uh, self-driving cars will uh, pay their service or, or electricity via cryptocurrency. Uh, so that's very uh, very easy to uh, to imagine now. Uh, yeah, so maybe if uh, if the cryptocurrency uh, adoption grows to the certain threshold, so we'll see the um, uh, the payment system without any central banks and uh, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, plus, uh, uh, the whole services like uh, so a lot of industries. Uh, can be disrupted with uh, with blockchain. So it's all this credit scores industry, uh, notaries, uh, some registrations, uh, stuff, uh, stuff like that. So if you fast forward twenty years into the future, in a world where there are no more no central banks because it's all effectively one of several digital currencies, what will be the major changes macroeconomically that will be? as an effect of having no centralized banks? Um, I don't think there will be no central banks. Yeah. So I think that they will rather uh, form a kind of alliance and use the technology uh, just to, to facilitate their operations and interoperations. So that's probably more uh, realistic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so no, no, um, no utopia just yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, we always like to wrap up with a, a few fun questions. So the first one is, what is one thing you wish you were more of an expert on right now? Quantum computing, maybe. <laughs> Quantum computing. All right. We look back now at slavery and we think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that that was even possible, that, that we allowed that to happen as a, as a human race. What will people 50 years from in the future look back at us today and think, what the hell were these guys thinking? Well, how come they didn't? So maybe all those all those fees you pay for financial services, yeah, and uh, for maybe some services, registration services, and uh, legal services. So maybe this one. So leakage leakage of financial value through an inefficient system. Right. Mm. Yes. Excellent. And um, if you had to recommend one book to our audience of that you read recently that you really enjoyed that is you know relevant to the topic, what what would it be? <laughs> uh, you mean fiction or technology? It'd be or whatever, whatever, whatever you like. I always recommend the, the book uh, called "God Is My Broker." God is my broker. Yeah, <laughs> Did excellent. You read it? What, what's what 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 made it stand out for you? Uh, it's it's just uh, it's a satire uh, on. Um, many things and it's actually very interesting so you'll enjoy it excellent well i look forward to reading it 
Well, Kieran and Dimitri, thanks for joining us on today's podcast. is is a wealth of knowledge, and uh, we'll put in the show notes a link to to your profile, to Sweatcoin, and to Blockwise, to some of the other publications, and also to your book, to the book that you recommended. Thanks again. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you. All right, bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.